Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from the message. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing and how you can get involved, check out our website, message.org.uk. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to our teaching series on the book of Philippians. My name is Sarah Small, and I'm going to be walking through the whole book um, over nine sessions, and this is session two. So if you missed session one, go back, have a listen. If you haven't had chance yet, get your Bible out and read the whole book. It's only four chapters. It's really good to sit down in one sitting and read a whole book of the Bible, get a really good understanding of the story, of what's been said, of how it sits in context. Um, that's my challenge to you after this, not during. So. About 15 years ago, I went on my first ever missions trip. It was with my church. I'd got signed up to go to Zambia, which is a country in Southern Africa. And uh, I was terrified. I had never really flown very much before in my life. I'd only just got a passport, uh, having lived most of my life on a farm in North Yorkshire. And uh, I was going off to do God's will uh, in a faraway land. And uh, I, I went with a team of people and it was an incredible experience, hugely challenging. Um, but in it, I met God in new ways and I saw him do new things. And when I needed him, because I was so far out of my comfort zone, I found him. And towards the end of our trip, our cars broke down. Well, one of our cars broke down, unfortunately, as happens. And uh, it meant that a bunch of us were going to have to travel from the northwest, where we had been staying, back down to the capital city on public transport. And I drew the short straw, along with Steve, who is now my husband, and his brother Dave, and our Zambian friend Frida. So the four of us set out on our journey. It was to be an entire day. I think we set off very early in the morning from what I remember. We didn't arrive until late at night and we spent a lot of time on a bus. And uh, I don't know about you, but um, when you're on a bus, when you're on transport, this was before the day of the smartphone. So 15 years ago, we had nothing to entertain us. So we spent most of the day playing a very long game of would you rather. Uh, it was actually fantastic in terms of getting to know Steve better, in terms of uh, finding out about each other. We weren't dating at the time, but, um, you know, God uses all things, doesn't he? But we spent hours and hours, would you rather this? Would you rather this? You know, I'm sure you've played the game. I'm sure you've heard some of the questions. Would you rather fight a horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? That was what comes up when you Google it. Would you rather be able to talk with the animals or speak a foreign language? Or this one's quite tricky for me. Would you rather never drink tea again or never eat chocolate again? A very big dilemma if you're me and perhaps if you're you as well. You see, we're faced with choices, with decisions, with dilemmas all the time. And sometimes we really know what we'd rather. We really know which choice we'd make. And other times it's much harder. And as we go through our passage today in the book of Philippians, we can see that Paul makes some really startling observations about some choices which seem to be obvious, but actually aren't. He seems to make some choices which don't make sense. He seems to prefer some things that we wouldn't necessarily humanly prefer. 
He has a mindset that is so different from our normal mindset that it's really challenging to read it. It would have been challenging to read it then and it's even more challenging to read it now in our culture, in our context and in our society. How can Paul answer these questions, make these observations? There is something about him, not just his words, but his actions, his very life, that tells us a fantastic and a, and a challenging, a compelling and a very tricky story um, for us to understand and for us to embrace. So let's read today's passage and then I'm going to look at four different observations that Paul makes that challenge us, that, um, that really shake the foundations of what we believe and what we know and what we do life for. So we're looking at the book of Philippians and we're still in chapter one and we're going to read verses 12 to verses 30. So get your Bible if you've got one, read along with me, uh, get your phone out, read along. I'm reading out the NIV and uh, this is Philippians 1, 12 to 30. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has been clear, become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have." 
The first of the four points that Paul addresses is around the idea of success and the idea of failure. As he writes this letter to his dear friends who he knows are concerned about him, he actually reassures them. He says to them, what looks like failure isn't. What looks like oppression serves only to advance the gospel. They're trying to lock it down. They're trying to lock me down. But little do they know that it's actually having a positive effect for the gospel. You know, often um, when we want to shut something down, when we want to stop it, we try and hide it, we try and kill it, we try and break it. Uh, when I was in high school, there was a certain book that some of the parents of my peers felt like we shouldn't read. They wrote a letter to the school, the school took it out the library. Suddenly, the book that not many of us had heard of and we weren't particularly interested in reading became the book that everyone had to get their hands on. It became hot property. People were buying it, people were sharing it, people were swapping it, desperate to know what was bad about this book. Why was it banned? Why did our parents think we shouldn't be reading it? And a similar thing happens here with the gospel. When Paul is imprisoned, and it's likely that he's imprisoned in Rome, it's likely that he was there for around two years under house arrest, people came to see him. And he always had a guard who was a member of the Roman army, somebody who had significant influence. And every single person heard the gospel directly from Paul. He had literally a captive audience. He was able to share the good news with everybody who came to him, people of influence, people who traveled, people who moved around in large numbers, people who were high up in Roman society. You see, trying to shut Paul down actually had the opposite effect for the gospel. The gospel can't be shut down through persecution. The gospel can't be shut down through repressing individuals. If you look at church history, you will see that the gospel thrives in adversity. The gospel passes more freely when there is oppression. That's not to say it's not awful. That's not to say it's not dreadful. That's not to say horrific things haven't happened to Christians, both historically and now. You know, you only need to read the stories of the early church. You only need to look at some of the stories of the Christian leaders that were oppressed in communism, that were oppressed through the Holocaust, that were oppressed through militant Islam today, that were oppressed in China and North Korea. Um, Organisations like OM and um, Open Doors, sorry, help us understand the plight of our suffering brothers and sisters in the church. You only need to start to read those stories to understand that something precious happens to the gospel when it is pushed down, when it is repressed, when people try and squash it because it won't be squashed. You can't stem the gospel through violence and through repression. Richard Wormbrand uh, wrote a famous book called Tortured for Christ. It's not an easy read. I found it on a bookshelf at a family member's house a few years ago and started to flick through the first few pages. I was uh, compelled to continue to read, but I had to keep stopping. It was so, so terrible to read. And yet um, the story of uh, the man who was tortured and yet the love that he had for his captors and the ability that he had to demonstrate physically and also to share with his words the gospel with them was incredible and he said this he said I have found truly jubilant Christians only in the bible in the underground church and in prison 
And isn't that true of Paul? His attitude consistently throughout this letter and as his writing is one of joy. He talks about having deep joy, even though he's in prison, even though he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die, how he's going to get out of this. He has joy because his primary goal in life is that the gospel is shared and the gospel is heard. And here it is thriving. Not only is it thriving in terms of the people he has direct contact with, but also the other Christians who've heard of him, who've heard of his story, are finding confidence. They're finding courage. What he is able to bear, what he is able to do, what God is able to achieve through him as he submits himself to God has enabled others to step up, to be courageous. And that is a really good um, um, it's a good uh, practice for us as Christians to read about others who God is using, to see videos and testimonies of the church where it's growing. I don't know whether any of you have watched any of the Sheep Among Wolves films. You can find them for free on YouTube. I'd really recommend it. Again, not easy watching, not like a comfy Netflix with your popcorn on a Friday night with a blanket over your knee but it's real life and it's fantastic what God is doing through people who submit their lives to him, who lay down their preferences and who faithfully share him. The gospel is running rampant in those places and it gives us confidence. If someone who um, shares the gospel at the very threat of their life can do it, then why do we find it so hard when the only thing that we really face is a bit of mockery or a bit of a, a snide comment? Why do we find it so difficult? Don't get fixed on the person though. Don't get fixed on the suffering. Don't get fixed on the gory stories. We can do that when we read these stories. Get fixed on Jesus. Get fixed on what he's able to do. Get fixed on the fact that he can bring joy in the most tragic and terrifying of circumstances, that he is present when his people are persecuted. The second thing that Paul speaks into is motives. And we know if we've read some of Paul's other letters that he can be quite severe when it comes to people who preach the gospel wrongly. And it doesn't seem like he's preaching about a wrong message here or a strange slant on the gospel. He's addressing people who, who preach the gospel with dubious motives. And for us, we'd be like, well, of course, if you're preaching the gospel with wrong motives, that's a problem. That's a challenge. We want to address that. But Paul says, do you know what? It doesn't matter. If these people are preaching about Christ because they want to get some sort of platform, because they want to get some sort of, they have some sort of ambition, maybe they think, oh, Paul's out the way, so the stage is clear, I can step up. He says, I don't mind. Because the primary goal is that Christ is preached and our motivations for doing so are secondary. And I find that actually quite a freeing and a, and a releasing thought because often my motivations are mixed. And particularly when you find yourself speaking to people, if it's something within your gifting, if it's something you enjoy doing, you can find yourself conflicted. Am I doing this for me? Am I doing this because I like it? Am I doing it because I really like the feedback and I'm gonna read the comments afterwards and I'm gonna feel really good about myself? Or am I doing it because I believe it's a gift that God has given me and it's something that he wants me to use for him? And there's some freedom in these words of Paul, which says, do you know what? If Christ is preached, 
that is the primary thing. That is the most important thing. And yes, we want to work on our motivations. Yes, we want to battle those fleshly desires which would elevate us um, beyond where we need to be elevating. For sure, we need to work on that. But there's grace, which is such a release. The third thing, and really the core uh, part of this scripture and this passage that we've read, is that Paul gives us some insight into the difference between life and death. And that's why I've called this talk Life or Death. And when we're given the choice, life or death, wouldn't we always choose life? Wouldn't we always uh, hang on to this precious gift that we've been given? Life is not easy to come by. It's not easy to hold on to. And yet it is the most precious thing that we have. Our life is so precious. It's so valuable to us. Our society values youth particularly very highly. Youth and, and wisdom and um, uh, you know, health and all these sorts of things, these are very valuable in our society. We don't really like to talk about illness. We don't really like to talk about death or sickness or suffering. The last year has been incredibly challenging because we've been forced to um, consider these things. But for Paul, in a real life situation, considering his own mortality, he makes a really surprising observation. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul seemingly has no fear of death. In fact, it looks like he's welcoming death. In fact, he says death is better by far. This is something I've often heard said at funerals, that the person who is gone is in a place that is better by far. And that adds some sort of consolation, doesn't it, when we grieve to imagine that our loved ones are in a better place. But for Paul, this isn't imagination. This is the, this is the trajectory of his life. This is what he's aiming for, to be with Christ in fullness, in wholeness, in completeness. He says to live is Christ. What does that mean? It means that he has communion with Christ in his life. It means that he's participating in Christ's work as he lives. And it also means that he embodies Christ's suffering in his own physical body. Everything that Paul does is modelled upon Christ and his example. But a much better thing would be to be with Christ in, its, in all of his fullness. Oxford University did a study a number of years ago of Christian responses, uh, not just Christian, sorry, responses to death. How do people fear death? How do people um, not fear death? And who does what? And basically what they found out was that if you truly have a deep-seated conviction, a religious belief, then you will have less fear of death. Um, if you have a, a kind of going to church uh, Christmas and uh, Easter or a sort of nominal faith, actually your fear of death is greater than the average person in society. And the only other people who don't fear death are really staunch and convicted atheists, perhaps because there is nothing in their mind to fear because there is nothing. But if you're a committed Christian, if you love Jesus, then you know that there is something greater awaiting us, a day when we will be fully in his presence. And Paul knew that. I love the way that the message version of the Bible talks about this statement of Paul's. It says, they didn't shut me up. They gave me a platform. Alive, I'm Christ's messenger. Dead, I'm his prize. Life versus even more life. I can't lose. 
isn't that the truth for each of us who believes in Christ? We can't lose in this life. If people feel like death is the worst thing they can do to us, well, death is just the gateway to be in the presence of Jesus, to be fully united. It's not something for us to fear. It's not something for us to, to, um, to, to make our life decisions around avoiding. It will come to us. The, uh, the mortality rate on life is still 100%. Each of us will face it one day. So what will we do with the life that we live in between? Because it isn't for us to decide on that day. It is in his hands. Because what Paul also alerts us to is that yes, death is better by far. Yes, being with Christ is better by far, but there is value in life. There is something strongly in him that desires to do the work of Christ in his lifetime, to participate with Jesus in what he's doing. And he wants Christ, he says, to be exalted even in his body. Often uh, I find myself really wrestling and I've really wrestled with this talk about the gap that can grow in my life between what I say and what I do. It's very easy to say the right thing. It's very easy to tell you all of this stuff about what Paul says and about Paul's conviction that death is better by far and about Paul's conviction that suffering and oppression is a great way for the gospel to, to spread. It's very easy to say all that stuff, but what does that look like in my life? What does that look like? Uh, in How do I embody that? How do I embrace that? How do I live free from fear and in the full joy of that? Paul wants that to be true of him. He wants Christ to be exalted, not just in his words, but in his body and in his example. We are supposed to be little Christs. That's what Christians mean. Examples of who Christ is. People will look at us and they will hopefully see something different, something challenging. That's why the example of the persecuted Christian is such a strong one because it is so countercultural to our natural desires and inclinations. And you know, when Paul says this, it's not just his words, it's the words of Jesus that he's repeating. There are many passages where Jesus speaks about suffering. In Mark 8, verses 34 to 37, um, he calls the crowds along to, uh, sorry, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? It's challenging stuff. Similarly, in John chapter 12, verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We can only gain what we really want through putting down what we think we want. Uh, one of my favourite quotes uh, from uh, learning about missions is from Jim Elliot. So he and his family went to be missionaries to a tribal region of Ecuador. He was killed along with some of his colleagues and the wives went back to the people and succeeded in reaching them with the gospel. It's an incredible story, but he says this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep 
to gain what he cannot lose. Why do we cling on to our privilege? Why do we cling on to our comfort? Why do we cling on to our security? Why do we cling on to our reputation? Why do we cling on to what other people think of us when we're asked to let go of all of those things? Because ultimately, they will all be lost. And we can only gain what Christ has for us by opening our hands. Paul doesn't waver in his conviction. He is confident, he is convinced. Look at the language he uses. He is eagerly expectant, he is hopeful, he knows what a position to be in, to live in that level of confidence. That is something to aspire to. That is something to pursue as a Christian. And finally, the fourth challenging observation that Paul makes is around victory or suffering. We all want to hear the victory message. We all want success to look like what we anticipate. We all want to be the one who has been rescued and redeemed and set free and brought into a vast and spacious place with a great plan for our lives and all of this other good scripture. But we very rarely want to suffer. And yet, Paul says, that is key. That is key to the bargain. That is key to the life. That is key to surrender. And Paul doesn't talk to them as some kind of far off teacher who's had his go and is now living a life of comfort. He doesn't talk to them as someone removed, as someone who can't relate. Paul talks to them as someone fighting his own battle, someone on the front line in his own life. And that's such an incredible witness. You know, often as part of Eden, we don't want to hear from people who are living comfortable lives telling us about what God has done. We want to hear from people who get the struggle, who know the challenges, who, can, um, who we can really respect and look up to because they've gone where we're going and we're going where they've gone. And Paul speaks to them and he says, whatever happens, whatever circumstances happen, whether I live, whether I die, Either of those things is fine by me, by the way. But don't let that affect you. You stand firm. You stay in God's will. You live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Don't react to the circumstances. And he paints this picture of unity. He says, stand in the one spirit. Strive together as one. Share the gospel and do not be afraid. And the picture that he paints, he's talking to military people in a, in a pioneer place. And these are people who know about the Roman army. They can imagine that, um, that army unit who lock their shields together as one. And he's painting this picture of them and saying, stick together, preserve unity. You have one spirit and one message. And when you've got each other, I talked about this last week, when you've got each other, you are stronger. Don't get separated off. Don't go and do your own thing and go your own way. Stick together and trust the Holy Spirit and he has got you. You see, in Christ, what looks like failure is actually the key to success. In Christ, wrong motivations can lead to people hearing the gospel and can be turned around. In Christ, what we fear most in the natural, what we try and avoid most is something to be most embraced and look forward to. And in Christ, what, is, um, what we aspire to in terms of comfort and prosperity and an easy life is turned around as we are caused and called to accept suffering. You can't lock the gospel down. 
The message is more powerful than our motivations. Death is better by far. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And we are to expect suffering. We are to expect a challenge along the way. What does this mean for us today? It means we need to work on giving our lives away. It means we need to work on releasing those clenched fists as we try desperately to hang on to what we think we need. It means we need to shift our perspective. It means we need to check what our goal in life is. What do we exist for? Do we exist to have a nice time, to build a family, to get a great house, to, to get a platform where we can tell people about Jesus, where we're nicely far away from the action? Or does it exist on being obedient to what he says and joining in with what he did? I grew up in the Methodist church and every year we prayed this Methodist covenant prayer. But it's only in recent years as I've read it, um, really with fresh eyes, I've understood its significance and the beauty of it. So as I close, I just want to read this prayer for us. And perhaps you'll join me in praying this in your own heart and your own mind as we consider these challenging scriptures but also remember that we're not left to do this alone. As we yield, as we submit to him, he comes to be with us. We have communion with him, participation with him. We have him in our physical body as well as in the world around us. So let me pray this as we come into land. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Thank you so much for joining with us today. Do keep reading these scriptures. Do keep digging into them. Do ask the, the Lord to, to reveal new stuff to you. And do be challenged to put some of this into action. We can listen to a great talk and say, that's great and share it with our mates. But it's not about listening. It's about taking what we hear and it's about putting it into practice. I'll see you again in a couple of weeks time. Bye. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support our work or even get involved with one of our teams. We also have another podcast called The Flow Podcast, where we share stories and testimonies of the amazing things that God's doing in people's lives. Search for The Flow Podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>